Hi, good afternoon everyone. Uh, welcome to CSIS. Uh, my name is Todd Harrison. I'm a senior fellow here in the International Security Program and the director of our Aerospace Security Project. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you all to this event where we are going to be uh, discussing uh, the global counter space uh, environment and what's going on around the world in terms of the development of threats to our space systems. Uh, we're going to start off today uh, with our keynote speaker, uh, Mr. Steve Kate, uh, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy. And in this role, uh, he's responsible for establishing policy and guidance to assure U.S. and allied warfighters bene uh, the benefits of space capabilities and to help guide the department's uh, strategy for addressing space-related issues. Uh, he has been uh, at the center of the development of the department's Space Force proposal to Congress. Uh, Steve previously served uh, in the, uh, on the House Armed Services Committee, uh, the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, uh, as a professional staff member. Uh, uh, so he is well enmeshed uh, in space issues, and it's really a pleasure to have Steve join us today. Uh, and he has graciously agreed, after he gives a few opening remarks, to take a few questions from the audience. Uh, and then after that, we're going to go right into our panel discussion. So Steve, come on up. Okay, good afternoon. It's great to be here with you all. Uh, and thank you to Todd Harrison and the team at CSIS for inviting me to speak and for holding this event on raising the awareness of the threat to US and allied space systems. The bottom line is that the threats to our space systems are real, serious, and growing. The department's trying to get the word out on this. In fact, the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Air and Space Intelligence Agency, uh, Center both put out unclassified reports earlier this year focused on this very issue. What was significant about these reports was the level of detail that was put in them. There's over 65 pages of information. I've got the reports here if people want to take a look at them. It was primarily focused on China and Russia, and it covers organization, doctrine, capabilities of their space and counter space efforts. And I don't have copies for everyone, but Madeline on my team here, if you can wave your hand, uh, has business cards that point to links to the electronic copies. And for those that are watching through the internet, if you Google uh, Space Force proposal, you'll find uh, the Space Force proposal as well as these associated documents on the DOD website. So let me very briefly highlight a few points on the threat. Both China and Russia have reorganized their militaries in 2015, emphasizing the importance of the space domain. China, in particular, led the world with the most number of launches last year. Both countries have developed robust and capable space services including space-based intel intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and their capabilities provide their militaries with the ability to command and control their forces worldwide and enhance situational awareness, enabling them to monitor, track, and target US and allied forces. Not only do Chinese and Russian military doctrine indicate they view space important to modern warfare, they view counter space capabilities as a means to reduce US 
and allied military effectiveness. Both states are developing systems that can achieve a range of reversible and irreversible effects, including jamming and cyberspace capabilities, directed energy weapons, on-orbit capabilities, and ground-based anti-satellite missiles. These are not just future threats. China has an operational ground-based anti-satellite missile today. So why do we care? We care because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines depend on space. Our national leadership depends on space. And space underpins our $19 trillion economy and the American way of life. Furthermore, the commercial sector is combining new technology, investments, and bold ideas to unlock exciting opportunities. Since the start of the space age, in 1957, there's been about 10,000 objects launched into space. If we look at future projections of what's going to happen in the next 10 years alone, there are 20,000 satellites that the commercial industry is planning to launch. Now, we know that they won't necessarily all succeed, but if even half of them do, the next 10 years will double the number of satellites launched over the entire space age. Ladies and gentlemen, we are at a strategic inflection point. The scope and scale of the threats to our space systems is at an all-time high and expanding, while our use of space is also at an all-time high and expanding. The US must maintain its leadership in space. So what does this all mean for the Department of Defense? It means that we can't take our freedom in space for granted, that space is not a sanctuary. Said another way, in military terms, space superiority is something to be gained and maintained. The profound aspect, I believe, and if there's one thing I leave you all thinking about, is that actions in space, not just terrestrially, will directly affect the outcome of future conflict or crisis. This means that the Department of Defense cannot view space just as a support function. We have to transform our approach to space not only as a support function, but also as a warfighting domain in its own right. A domain where we must deter aggression, be prepared for competition, and be ready to defend against hostile actions should deterrence fail. Let me be clear about two items. The United States would prefer the space domain remain free from conflict. However, we must be prepared to meet and overcome any challenges that arise. Second, this is not space for space's sake. This is about life here on Earth. This is about protecting our freedoms and our way of life. Whereas General Dunford, United States Marine Corps, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, recently stated in a hearing, quote, we can generate all the squadron or battalion readiness we want. But if we're not capable of defending ourselves in space and taking full advantage of space, battalion and squadron readiness will amount to naught. End quote. 
This is why we need a Space Force now. The world is changing, and the military needs to change with it. Yes, this is a significant move. What we're proposing to Congress is a new armed force, something we haven't done in over 70 years. We believe that the time has come where we need to structurally posture ourselves, consistent with the role of space in our national security and the importance for the future of our nation. So what does a military service do? A service allows us to elevate, unify, and focus our efforts on this unique domain. Elevate. A service will institutionally, not just subject to personalities, elevate space. With the chief of staff as a member on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and a dedicated undersecretary providing civilian leadership focus full-time on organizing, training, and equipping of our space forces and ensuring space is appropriately prioritized. Unify. A service will bring the fragmented elements together to ensure we integrate both at speed and at scale in an enterprise approach and have the authority, responsibility, and accountability clearly aligned. Focus. Space is as different from air as air is from land and land is from sea. A surface will be responsible for developing the people, the culture, the doctrine of space power, and the capabilities both to enable the joint force and to deter and defend against threats in this domain. Now it's critical that we take an approach that allows us to maximize warfighting capacity while minimize additional bureaucracy. And we've evaluated multiple options and have reviewed the work already done over the past decades in, on this topic by previous independent commissions and the GAO. This review led us to establish the Space Force within the Department of the Air Force, similar to the Marine Corps within the Department of the Navy. We believe this represents a relatively modest but prudent investment of point, less than 0.1% of the department's overall budget. Let me close with one of my favorite quotes. This is from Giulio Duhay, an Italian air marshal and air power theorist from the early 1900s, who stated, quote, victory smiles upon those who anticipate the character of war, not upon those who wait to adapt themselves after changes occur. End quote. The character of warfare is changing, and the time to adapt our approach is now. Thank you again to CSIS, the other panelists, and all of you for being here, and your partnership at this extremely exciting time for a nation space program. Okay, any questions? Okay, please. And if they said if you can introduce yourself and where I you're from. Uh, thank you. I'm Steve Hirsch. I'm a freelance journalist. All of your arguments in favor of a space, space force are, in fact, arguments in favor of uh, uh, taking space seriously as a military domain, which is fine. But in terms of creating a space force, a separate entity, 
it would do all the things that you mentioned, but it would also do a couple of other things. Um, it would duplicate uh, a lot of function by creating a separate force, separate from the Air Force itself. Mm. It would involve duplication and rivalry between the new force and the other five forces. It would be the smallest of six services and might suffer mm. uh, in, uh, uh, with regard to the others. Um, a space force is different than setting up the Marines under the Navy because there, there are no troops. We're not sending space troops yeah. up there. So uh, all of those are good arguments against this sort of bureaucratic shift, yeah. having nothing to do with what you say about, yeah. about, um, about the value of space as a military. Uh, we might also have to rebuild the Pentagon into a hexagon, but I, I don't know whether uh, that's in there. What do, you, what do you say to these arguments against the bureaucratic hurdles in creating a new force? Okay. Um, thank you for that question. Uh, I appreciate it. We've been spending a lot of time on Capitol Hill discussing the proposal. And uh, as you might imagine, they are doing a lot of oversight on this topic because it is a big move for our nation. And we're having really good discussions. And the, the elements you bring up are questions that we get. So I'm going to try and hit each of those separately. The first one you had mentioned was duplication. This is in, in concern about it duplicating. Uh, and that is exactly why we structured the approach such that we did that it is within the Department of the Air Force and we're taking an approach where, for instance, the base operation support, um, doctors, dentists, lawyers, the aspects that are not unique to the domain of space or central to the independence of a separate service, for instance, preparing a budget would be within the Space Force, will reside still within the United States Air Force. So if then you follow that to the next step, which uh, is where you went on the size, the size of the force, because particularly the way we scope this proposal in how I just said, where it's elements that are unique to the domain of space, like operations, acquisition, and the related functions, uh, does get you to a small force. Roughly 15,000 people are what we anticipate transferring in. And what I would say to, to you there is that although this is projected to be relatively small in comparison to the size of the other armed forces, it will be mighty in its impact. And the impact that space has on the entire joint force needs to be taken into account. Which so and 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 so competing against larger forces, uh, and that's where the structure that we've created, where an independent chief on the Joint Chiefs of Staff will not be measured by the size of the force. He will be, he or she will be measured by the impact that they're bringing to national security, and their voice would be equal to the other chiefs. The element then on troops and not deploying that this isn't we're not talking about sending you know marines into space and um and and physically putting people there the what we need to think about and this really gets to my comment on the future of warfare we can't be held to the same approaches that we've been thinking 
insofar as the challenges that we're facing in the future. And the role that space does have in conflict, and specifically getting to that point that I was trying to make, that actions in space will affect the outcome of conflict or crisis, which is a change. We always had space providing those support functions to the ground, but we have to fundamentally look at it a different way. And I think that is exactly what's needed at this point. We can't just approach these problems in the same way that we've done in the past. Thank you. Anyone else? Hello, uh, my name is Gentoku Toyoma. Uh, I'm a second year graduate student at Tokyo Washington University. So since I'm Japanese, I have a question about international co space cooperation. Yeah. So like recently, US military is focusing, is emphasis, emphasizing cooperation in space domain. And so for example, last week, US and Japan have a two plus two, mm. and space was a, a one of the topic. And my question is, what do you think uh, the obstacles to promote international space cooperation uh, with allies? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I didn't hit on that on my remarks, so I'm glad that you, you gave me the opportunity to speak about that. International space cooperation is essential to our way ahead, and fundamentally, our approach to space in the Department of Defense is within the approach of the National Defense Strategy, which is guiding the rest of the department. And I'll just briefly mention that the three lines of effort in the National Defense Strategy are enhancing the lethality of our forces, strengthening our alliances and partnerships, and reforming the department. So this is a key effort. And just as we fight in our other domains, in coalitions, and with our partners, we need to be side by side with our partners in space. There's a lot of activity that's going on there, in particular with Japan and our other close allies. Uh, I would mention that we have a variety of efforts that are going on that range from architectures to increasing the resilience of our architectures and doing that cooperatively. Uh, war games, we do the Shriver War Game each year and we bring our allies into that where we discuss what conflict extending into space would uh, look like and how would we respond and how do we deter adversaries. And then the, the third area we spend a lot of time on is uh, increasing the expertise and on the personnel and doing joint training. And the Air Force um, has opened up some new programs to our alliances. As far as obstacles, to get to your specific question there, it's, it's a new way of doing business. Historically, a lot of uh, activities in space were highly classified and was uh, an approach where it made it difficult to share. So that is something that we've really been uh, working to adjust to ensure that we can work with our partners more. Even this event in and of itself, talking about the threats to our space systems, I'd mentioned these two reports that were put out. That's our effort to really try and bring elements to a lower classification level, both so we can have discussions with uh, the public as well as closer discussion with our allies. Thank you. Um, Joe Martin, independent consultant. Uh, you mentioned that as a service, uh, as a service chief, 
uh, he will be or she will be evaluated based on the effectiveness of Space Force. How will the American public be able to judge the success uh, of Space Force? Uh, is there a milestone out there? Do you have plans? Uh, do you have goals? Is there something out over the horizon uh, for the American public to uh, judge the success of Space Force? Thank you. Great question. Um, so I would say uh, I'd, I'd kind of put it in levels of detail in so far as that plan going forward and uh, the ability for the American public to to continue to stay engaged and, and be aware of it. Um, the first major action, uh, at least publicly, really codifying the activities in our approach was Space Policy Directive 4, which was signed by the President earlier this year, which outlined the establishment of the Space Force. After that, then the Department of Defense did provide a proposal to Congress of which all of that detail was put online, and that's at the website that I had mentioned. If you Google Space Force proposal, you'll see it on the Department of Defense website. We have a strategic overview that really lays out for the public what our plans are in addition to the 70 pages of legislation that we uh, proposed to Congress. Then the next layer of activity is also happening now where we have to be postured should uh, Congress authorize this activity to really be ready to take it to the next step. The Air Force has the lead there. Uh, the Department of the Air Force, the Secretary, has designated a two-star career uh, general that's now leading that detailed planning to then lay out what these milestones look like. I would mention that we are taking a very uh, phased and methodical approach to building the Space Force. If in our proposal, uh, if approved by Congress, the first year starts with 200 people. And that's really establishing the headquarters, the leadership positions, and then after that, in subsequent years would be when the existing forces start actually flowing into the Space Force to make sure that we take this really sequentially. Throughout that time, uh, we will continue to work to share with the public what our plans are and certainly, um, you know, one way in a near term to also keep an eye on is the congressional action because that's really the next step of where we're at and uh, that will be very public as well insofar as when they put out bills and it goes through the committee markup process and uh, members bring amendments that whole process is open to the public insofar as people seeing the legislation taking the next step and insofar as the the Senate Armed Services Committee, the House Armed Services Committee um, will do whatever legislation they do, and then it goes through the Senate and the House uh, for votes, and then eventually it goes through a conference process. So each of those steps, which happens over a series of um, several months, will be publicly seen. Okay, so I'm going to hand it over now to the next uh, panel. Again, thank you to CSIS, thank you to Secure World, uh, and inviting me to be here and looking forward to hearing the discussion.
Thank you, Steve, um, for those great remarks and for uh, agreeing to come speak with us uh, and take questions from the audience. Um, I'm pleased uh, to be able to introduce this great panel uh, of colleagues, experts uh, in the field here of looking at counter space uh, technologies and capabilities of, uh, of other countries and all around the world. Uh, so to my immediate left, uh, Victoria Sampson uh, from the Secure World Foundation, Caitlin Johnson, uh, who's here uh, with CSIS, Brian Whedon, also with the Secure World Foundation, and Thomas Roberts uh, from here at CSIS. Um, I'm going to uh, see if my, my training here uh, on how to use the clicker is going to work. Nope, nope, nope. All right, here we go. <laughs> I went too far. Um, so what we'll be talking about today are two reports uh, that our think tanks each put out just recently, released them earlier this month. Uh, not by coincidence, we released them on the same day. Uh, and they both look at uh, counter space capabilities. So uh, the CSIS report, uh, and for both of us, it's our second year of doing this. I think we're gonna make them annual updates. We'll see how tired we get over the years. Um, but there seem to be a lot of developments worthy of an annual update. Uh, so ours is called Space Threat Assessment. We did one in 2018. This is our 2019 edition. Uh, and the Secure World Foundation report is Global Counter Space Capabilities. Uh, and they have a 2018 and a 2019 edition as well. So what I thought we would do today, rather than reading you the in reports in their entirety, which we could do, um, instead, I thought that maybe we would have each person highlight something that they found that was significant in doing their research as part of these reports, something that stood out to them uh, that they think is worth discussing. And so uh, I want to start uh, with Victoria. Uh, I'll hand you the, the clicker here. And I'm going to hand it on to Kate. Okay. <laughs> so over to you, Victoria. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you to CSIS uh, for inviting us to be part of this conversation. Um, we look forward to talking to you about the counter space threat assessment and answering any questions you might have at the end. Um, so I'll be talking a little bit about India's March ASAT test. I will point out that you may have noticed that um, when you walked in, there were publications available. Um, ours was only the executive summary, whereas CSIS had a lovely printed edition. Um, it was because uh, literally we sent our uh, publication to the printer on a Tuesday and woke up on Wednesday and found that the Indians had tested and we thought, okay, literally halt the presses. Uh, so we're, it's being printed, it should be out, and it's available in whole on our website as well if you really can't wait to get hold of it. Um, but I'll talk a little bit about that, uh, the India ASAT test, and we are going to be having a... Um, Okay, yeah, in the background. Um, a short video by a the good folks at AGI did some modeling and simulation of the actual intercept. Um, so while I'm talking, you guys can watch that. Um, but basically, as you know, on March 27th, the Indians tested an um, anti-satellite weapon. They used a missile defense interceptor to shoot down a satellite which had been launched apparently specifically for this reason in January of this year by the Indians. Um, it was done at a relatively low altitude at about 280 kilometers. Um, they have, a, it was done mostly at a direct intercept at a level, but it may have been going up a little bit. Uh, the, the pieces of debris that were created, about 400 that were tracking, about 24 of them apparently were kicked to an apogee above the International Space Station because it was at somewhat upward 
hit. Um, so while most of the debris will come down within probably about six to eight weeks, it is possible the, the debris that's at a higher altitude of um, apogee of about, I think, 2,000 kilometers is what they're saying, uh, may take a year and a half or two years to come back down. Um, so um, talking about response from that, the Indians um, were very proud of the technical progress that this demonstrated. Um, if you read Indian newspapers, they are very excited about it. They, they say, okay, this demonstrates that India is a space power, and we have showed China that we can do this. Um, the question is why um, they are focused on doing it. Um, the reason why we even included India when we did a counter space threat assessment last year is because for years it's been pretty obvious that India is upset about the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and that it was signed before India tested a nuclear weapon. India believes firmly if they had tested a nuclear weapon prior to the NPT, they would have been grandfathered in as a nuclear weapon state. And so the thinking was if it looked like the international community was getting close to some sort of anti-satellite test ban, the Indians would quickly throw one up there to get in on the action so they could be grandfathered in as a space weapon state, so to speak. Um, and so this has been in the works for a couple years. Um, but also, I mean, never forget or uh, overestimate the idea of um, domestic political considerations. Um, India's undergoing a general election right now. It's going on for about a month. Um, and this has been used to, basically it's a win-win for the Indian government, for the Modi administration, because they can demonstrate they're tough on China and that they are a major space power and there has been very little domestic criticism of this. In fact, the only criticism I have seen is today there are a series of articles in the paper by Prime Minister Modi criticizing the previous um, political party, said they're being negligent in protecting India's national security by not testing the ASAT earlier. He said, you should have done it earlier. You weren't protecting you, our, our, our national security considerations. So that is one interesting interpretation for that. Um, yeah, and I, I won't talk too long because I know we've got a lot of stuff to go through, but just a couple um, significance um, of this test. It seems that there is some sort of norm emerging and that is it acceptable to have an anti-satellite test if you are, first of all, a U.S. ally if you use a missile defense interceptor and if you do it at a low enough altitude that the debris is short-lived. Is that something that we are comfortable um, being established? I don't know if that conversation is being had. Um, this is not necessarily a threat to the United States. I don't think anyone um, here believes India will be targeting U.S. satellites. But the concern I have is this is establishing a precedent in proliferating this capability and proliferating usage of this capability. This could clutter the domain in a very serious way that could threaten our space assets. Um, so that would be a challenge from an SSA perspective and also from a security perspective. You know, and then finally ending on a positive, um, in my opinion, India has been a space power for some time. They've done tremendous work with their PSLV launching numerous satellites. They've done a lot of scientific research, um, projects with the moon. They did not need this to demonstrate themselves as a space power. I don't know that it enhances their national security. And I would just caution other countries who are thinking about doing it that this is not what one needs to do to be a major space power. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I am going to talk about um, 
some jamming equipment that China has placed in the Spratly Islands. Uh, I was really fortunate to partner with um, another CSIS group called the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative here, which found this image and located these jammers, um, kind of uh, confirmed a, a story that the Wall Street Journal put out of uh, these jamming um, truck mountain jammers existing. Um, and so it's really great when we get to work in, internally within CSIS that because, um, you know, they, they found this and, and reported it and didn't quite understand the significance of it. So I'm here to talk a little bit about the significance of China openly moving their jamming equipment into the South China Sea and, and testing it um, to, to ensure that it's operational. And so this is an image of Mischief Reef, which is, again, one of the, uh, in the Spratly Island chain. Uh, they have placed uh, jamming equipment on a second island in the same chain, um, but this is the better picture. So, um, uh, China did this back around this time last year, April, May, um, and, and subsequently tested it. Vietnamese fishing boats reported loss of GPS in the area, um, and that's how we know that the, or we suspect that the system is operational, although they haven't um, outrightly tested it uh, to our knowledge since then. Um, as you all know, the South China Sea is a highly contested area at the moment, a uh, kind of gray zone operational area, and jamming equipment really plays into this because there are no um, established norms of behavior. There's very limited response um, or, or ability to respond by the United States, by countries being affected like Vietnam, um, or by uh, you know other other nations operating in the area. So um, for China, this was uh, a pretty slick move of uh, being able to uh, place these place these there and, and ensure their continued operations um, and ability to jam in the future. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand it over to Brian. Thank you. Um, so I just want to note that uh, two years ago, we did a tabletops uh, scenario exercise with CSIS, and part of the things we exercised was exactly this, the role of a GNSS jammer on an island in a disputed conflict zone, and uh, so if you want to go see that report, it was, had some interesting implications. We didn't call it China. We, no, of course not, no, because <laughs> um, it could have been one of several countries. Uh, so I'm going to focus on a category of activities instead of one specific one, and that would be rendezvous and proximity operations. Uh, over the last several years, there's been uh, a lot of news stories and a lot of uh, emerging evidence of satellites in, the, in orbit, both in low Earth orbit and geostationary orbit, getting close to other satellites. And that uh, ranges from uh, countries doing demonstrations of a satellite getting close to their own satellite uh, and demonstrating the ability to maintain that sort of uh, close proximity operations, uh, and also satellites getting close to other countries' satellites, uh, most likely for intelligence uh, and surveillance capabilities. I don't expect to be able to read this chart, but I just want to put it up here to show the number of incidents we've seen, uh, again, largely over the last 10 years, from the United States, Russia, and China of experiments and demonstrations of this rendezvous and proximity operations capability. Uh, in our report, we have details on all these incidents that are happening. Um, what we're seeing is, again, this technology is being uh, developed, 
demonstrated um, and possibly operationalized for a range of natural security applications. Uh, as I said, the, the most likely near-term application is surveillance uh, and, and inspections and intelligence collection, uh, but it certainly could support everything from targeting of other types of counter space capabilities to potentially even its own uh, being used for being used itself for offensive counter space uh, activities. I also want to mention that you know when we talk about rendezvous and proximity operations um, in space. It is a bit different. Uh, as Steve mentioned in his opening remarks, space is very much different domain from air, land, and sea. And so the way things move in space is, orbit, is dictated by orbital mechanics and is very different than how we think of things that move. So if you take a satellite that's in an orbit, and this is a notional geostationary satellite in a geostationary orbit. So it's 36,000 kilometers above the equator and it takes 24 hours to go around the Earth once. I have a satellite that wants to do a, a proximity operation. Let's say I want to go, I want to image that satellite and go all the way around it. So I put it in an orbit that is very similar, but just a little bit different, a little bit more eccentric, basically. And what happens, if you see on the, on the left are the orbits around the Earth, and on the right are the two satellites relative to each other. And as they go around, you're basically going to see that one satellite appears to move around the other satellite, even though they're both still going around the Earth. That is the basics of a, of a, of a typical, of a, just one type of rendezvous proximity operation that happens, in this case, in the geostationary environment, to do some sort of an inspection uh, or intelligence collection mission. A couple things I'll point out. One is that it does take 24 hours to go around the other satellite, relatively speaking. That's not something that happens very quickly. You don't just dive in and take two minutes of photos and dive back out again. This is dictated by orbital mechanics. They're both going around the Earth. It's just the relative motion happens to be one going around the other. Um, the second thing is that there are unique aspects of this. Things like where the sun is that allows you to see the other satellite, but perhaps the other satellite not to see you. Other types of dynamics. Where in this orbit are you communicating with the ground stations? Where are the other person coming to the ground stations? That are very important for doing this from national security context. That are probably not, they're very different things to think about than if you're coming at it from a, an air, a space, or a land background. So I just want to keep this in mind as we talk about further about rendezvous and proximity operations and what it's like in space compared to elsewhere. Um, the third thing I just want to mention is that there's a different kind of rendezvous proximity operation that we've also seen, uh, and that is satellites in the geostationary belt putting themselves next to another satellite. So in the geostationary belt, everything I said is going around the Earth pretty much in the same direction. Think of it like a circular racetrack. Uh, and satellites are usually put in a specific longitude relative to the equator. Uh, to provide services over a certain part of the Earth. It's not unusual for satellites to relocate themselves to other places. So I might be providing, I don't know, satellite TV over North America, and I sell that satellite to somebody else, and they reposition it somewhere else, and now it's providing services over Europe. That's not uncommon. What we have been seeing, though, is satellites that are over the period of weeks and months moving themselves to be up next to multiple different satellites. Uh, again, probably for an intelligent sort of inspection sort of a mission. Um, and this is an example of 
One of these satellites this is a Russian satellite that's as it's moving around uh, the geostationary belt over a period of I think around 18 months um, and stopping periodically to be next to. And when I say next to, I mean 15, 10 kilometers, something in that neighborhood uh, of other satellites uh, owned by other countries or, or, or commercial entities um, as it's going around. Russia is not the only country doing this, uh, but this is a good example uh, with some interesting data as it's happening. Um, why would you want to do this? Well, you get close to the satellite, you can take some pictures, see what it's made of. Other possibility is you can see what signals are being sent to the satellite um, and possibly who's sending them, uh, which could also be of an intelligence value. So I will stop there and pass it on to Thomas. Thanks, Brian. I think that was a good example of how our different groups um, collaborate and work together, but also take different approaches to talk about similar issues. So that last graphic that uh, Brian was showing was developed by my colleagues and I here at CSIS, and it's a, a different approach of showing similar information. Um, and you can find all of these tools. I'll describe another one right here um, on our website. That's aerospace.csis.org. That last graphic can be found at um, slash Olymp. This next one, um, you can find at aerospace.csis.org slash arctic jamming. And um, so when we were asked to each highlight one vignette from our findings, it was pretty easy for me to select this one. Um, unlike finding photos of uh, military-grade truck-mounted jammers in the South China Sea, um, perhaps guessing what their purpose might be, um, I prefer to look back at uh, the country responsible for the most instances of GPS jamming. These are recorded occurrences where it's, it's not up for debate whether pilots in a given region were denied access to their GPS signals because by civil, civil um, aviation authority standards, they must report that signal loss. And there are agencies responsible for collecting that data and publishing it so other pilots can remain safe during their regular operations. So this, this next tool I wanna highlight, um, it does do a bit of testing of our northern Scandinavian geography, um, but this is northern Norway, uh, Finland, Sweden, and Russia. Uh, Norway's northernmost uh, county is called Finnmark, and it does indeed border Russia. Um, and so one of my, my favorite uh, blogs in, um, in the space policy community are those that study GNSS, or position navigation and, and timing resources around the world. And, and last year, um, they renamed the most jammed country on Earth. It's been South Korea for a long time. This is not a quantitative measurement by any means, I don't think. Um, but last year, South Korea was dethroned, and Norway was known as the most jammed country. And it's because of these occurrences I want to describe next. Um, so unlike uh, Russia using GPS jamming or other satellite communications jamming or spoofing during uh, wartime in regions of conflict, which they, they've been accused of doing um, in, in the Crimean conflict in Syria, in fact, last year's report highlighted 7,000 occurrences when Ukrainian officials said that they were denied GPS services in the region of conflict in Crimea. Um, unlike those times, in this region, um, we're looking at moments of peacetime when Russia is not at war with Norway or Finland or Sweden, but nonetheless, since September 2017, these regions have experienced aggressive and consistent GPS jamming, um, and the Norwegian Civil Aviation Authority has formally blamed Russia, and other government bodies have done the same. And what's interesting is if you look at these reports of GPS jamming, 
there a, a strong pattern begins to develop. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate to have, uh, as part of my research team, Alex Coltrup, who's standing in the back, uh, a civilian pilot herself, who can help me read notice to airmen, or NOTAMs, uh, delivered at different times from September 2017 until, until about now. And as I mentioned before, these are not random, but they're clustered during times of military exercises in the region. And so I'm gonna click play on this graphic. And you can, uh, you can notice if it works. Um, these yellow orbs are, are regions that have experienced GPS loss. These are civilian airports, and they correspond to a military exercise done in that region right there being highlighted uh, uh, in a, during an exercise called Zapad 2017, a joint Russian-Belarusian military exercise. Um, but I also clustered a few other occurrences as well. In 2018, in the fall, Trident Juncture was a NATO exercise happening on the west coast of Norway when civilian airports as well experienced GPS outages. And these are airports that supported Trident Juncture and also those that didn't. Um, and then the last scenario we highlight on this online tool, um, I think it should click next or perhaps not, is uh, called Exercise Clockwork, which is a British helicopter ex exercise also on the western coast of Norway. Um, and in, in each of these times, uh, these occurrences were investigated by Norwegian authorities, in one case Swedish authorities as well, and measurements can be taken of where GPS signal losses are experienced not just at airports, not just at regions to and from airports, but in a designated investigation, typically done by helicopter, where measurements can be taken in the region about where a GPS signal loss could be coming from. And several reports noted that it's more likely than any region that these, uh, this, the, the signal that is being used to jam these GPS signals is coming from Russia or just over the Russian border across Finnmark. And so what I like to highlight here is this is different than North Korea using uh, GPS jamming services at the demilitarized zone against South Korea. Um, this is different than Russia using it against Crimea or Syria. This is during peacetime. And um, I expect these measurements to continue happening. And I'd be curious to see if they're happening during continued military exercises. Uh, it is a bit odd to see three uh, consecutive uh, exercises from three different operators happening in the same region, but it's, uh, it's convenient to, to sort of prove a hypothesis in this case. But I'm, I'm sure to see it happening going forward in other regions as well. So thank you. So thank you, each of you, um, for highlighting areas that you thought were interesting in your research. I want to open it up now for questions. Uh, so if you have a question in the audience, please raise your hand uh, and wait for a microphone uh, to come around to you. Um, was that a question back there or? Okay. Um, while we're waiting for a question, um, Victoria, I wanted to go to you first. Uh, and I want to get your assessment of what the long-term effects of the Indian ASAT test would be in terms of the geopolitical environment. And in particular, um, what kind of message do you think is being received by India's competitors, adversaries like Pakistan and China? Uh, do you think the Indian ASAT test is going to make China, for example, um, you know, uh, not pursue ASAT weapons or to pursue them less or to scale back its space ambitions? Or do you think the opposite might actually happen? Well, that's the truly sad thing. Um, India is very focused on what China is doing, what they're capable of, and what they're thinking about. China is like, we think there's a country named India. We don't really pay attention to them. Did they do a test? Um, I will say that um, after the ASAT test was held, very few countries came out with any kind of critical statement about the test. Um, China was one of them. 
Shockingly, Pakistan was another. Germany was another. Um, NASA did and then kind of backed up a little bit. I will say the US State Department was very muted in their response, as were a lot of our European allies. Um, so yeah, but I don't think China, I mean, the thing that really struck me is you know, a lot of the, the press in India, again, they're very excited and they're saying, well, this shows we can deter India, uh, China. Like, against what? Well, you know, do you think the Chinese are gonna be putting satellites at 300 kilometers that you can then shoot down and then it's gonna be critical to some sort of you know, conjunction over the Himalayas? Like, no, it's not. Uh, they're not using you in your, their calculations. They're not thinking about the Indian capabilities. Um, I read one Indian analysis that said, well, okay, Pakistan could probably get this now because the Chinese will give them an ASAT and now we have to keep them in mind. And I'm like, again, that's not how ASAT technology works or political discussions or geopolitical strategy whatsoever. Um, but there could be long-term consequences and that countries feel that they want to be taken seriously as a space power, that they need to demonstrate a, a hit to kill ASAT capability. Now think about the space powers that have had ASAT tests so far. Which one of them has not demonstrated this? Russia. So does that mean that the Russians are now gonna get, so we gotta get on the game, we gotta have an, a hit to kill ASAT test, as long as we do in a low enough altitude, should be okay. I mean, I really hope that's not what the takeaway is from this, but it is technically possible, and if you look at international discussions happening, there's nothing really preventing from a legal standpoint the Russians from doing this. So I guess keep an eye on this space. No pun intended. Okay. Uh, all right, sir, so are there uh, any other questions from the audience? I see one in the, the back of the room here. Sarah Brothers from the National Academies. So I have a question for Victoria that kind of follows up on Todd's question. Um, so following the Indian ASAT test, we did see Administrator Bridenstein come forward and, and denounce it. And then you said he backed off a little. Earlier this year, we saw him um, issue an invitation to the head of the Russian Space Agency and then kind of back off on that as well. And so I'm curious what the opinion of the panel panelists is on kind of what NASA's role in this evolving contested space is and, and where they might project that role goes in the future. Well, I can take first crack at that, but I'm sure my colleagues have other thoughts on that. I mean, that's a really interesting viewpoint because NASA is having a hard time figuring out what their role is. I mean, it used to be a real separation between civil space and security space and never the twain shall meet, and that line is blurring. Um, if nothing else, because what NASA is doing can be affected by what other countries are doing in space and by national security considerations in space. Um, again, just look at the space station. They have people up in orbit that in theory could be affected by debris created from space one, anti-satellite weapons. So they're naturally gonna be concerned about that. I will say Administrator Bridenstine, uh, when I said he backed off, I didn't mean him as a criticism of him. Actually, I respect his um, vigorous criticism of, of what happened, but it was my understanding it was what he said, well, we're not gonna work with the Indians on human space flight, and that was a day later. He said, oh, actually, um, on second thought, after guidance from the White House, we will reconsider that. So I think there's probably a lot of pressure from above on that, but it does indicate, again, I think people um, in the scientific community used to be, well, we don't have to deal with security issues because we're, we're scientists, that's, that's above, that's beyond us. And that's not the case. Um, I will, like one case in point, the International Astronautical Congress, which meets every year in some part of the world, talks about space issues. They have really fought against having space security issues brought up, because they said, well, you know, we're really technologists. We don't need to worry about that sort of thing. 
Um, on the contrary, you really do need to focus on that. That will affect your ability to utilize space, and it will affect international politics, which again will affect your ability to access space. So I think it's just it's it's part of how the overall domain is changing, and uh, perhaps some of the older technocrats and and scientists are not happy about it, but. Things are changing, you have to evolve with it. Hopefully they'll figure it out before the decision is made for them. I just wanna you know, dovetail on what Victoria said, and I think part of it also is we've got a NASA administrator, uh, Jim Bridenstine, who came from the House of Representatives where he really was, in many respects, a thought leader on space issues. I mean, it's kind of ironic because he was criticized during the confirmation process for not having enough of a space background, but he really was a thought leader uh, in the House when it came to space issues and pushing some major reforms or things like space traffic management and commercial space. Um, and so I think, you know, he is bringing into the job of administrator kind of a more multidisciplinary view uh, of space uh, that is not just narrowly focused on NASA's science and exploration missions. And so I think that's why you see him coming out and speaking a bit more forcefully and maybe getting out ahead of the rest of the administration on some of these issues. But, um, you know, my personal perspective is that's a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I think that's great and uh, he should keep doing it. Yeah, I agree. I, I think his initial reaction and criticism was, was very well justified because he has employees that are up on the International Space Station and there's at least a couple dozen pieces of debris that went up past the space station and will be a potential collision hazard uh, for the next several months, if not year, year and a half or more. So I think that was definitely justified as criticism. Um, and then I think, you know, Probably what happened is there's you know broader geopolitics of the U.S.-India relationship, uh, you know that's sort of what brought uh, you know the concern from the White House about him potentially about Minister Bridenstein sort of getting out ahead of things. Um, as far as as NASA's role in all this, uh, I do think it is changing a bit that we do have to think of NASA as not just science and peaceful use outer space, but as part of a broader U.S. strategy and engagement in space. Uh, we had an event uh, a couple weeks ago on U.S.-China engagement in space, uh, and we talked about the role for NASA as a civil component of that engagement. And we used the word engagement specifically because, you know, the U.S. and China are engaged in a long-term competition uh, on across multiple aspects of space, uh, and that involves both military activities uh, and, and engagement, and probably civil space engagement. And we talked about the role of, of NASA um, in that going forward. And the, one of the big things that came out of that was the need for there to be uh, for the U.S. to come up with uh, you know a holistic strategy of how it's going to engage with China across military, commercial, and civil space, and then figure out what the role is for NASA in that relationship. Um, and that would probably go for other. Uh, geopolitical relationships as well. Any other questions in the audience? I see a lady up here. So, um, considering the concern that Victoria expressed earlier about India's ASAT test resulting in a proliferation of the capability around the world as people see that it's less criticized than they would have anticipated. Do you see any kind of new treaty regime coming out of this, especially like with the development of jammer technology and all of this, all of the high-speed development in space technology we're seeing right now? 
Um, do you see any kind of treaty regime possibly taking over for the OST or building on it, forming? <laughs> I could talk all day. Um, <laughs> last time I get invited in panel here. Uh, so, I mean, in terms of a treaty regime, I don't know if necessarily there is an appetite internationally for doing some sort of international legal regime. Um, I know the lawyers in the audience are wincing at that. But there are international negotiations in multilateral fora that can have non-legally -bi binding and yet extremely helpful agreements that could be used in this case. Um, I'm thinking specifically uh, the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space put out long-term sustainability guidelines last year. They agreed to 21 ways in which to ensure that space is usable over the long term. ASAT testing was not one of them, but you have to start somewhere. And in my mind, you know, something that I think 93 countries agreed to, including the United States, Russia, and China, is, is a good idea that there is some possibility for these international discussions. Um, there, there was a, a UN organization, it's a small group called the Group of Governmental Experts, where they're assigned to discuss issues and then come up to consensus and give a recommendation to the Secretary General. They just wrapped up in March a meeting in Geneva looking at possible considerations and methods to do a treaty on prevention of arms race in outer space. They did not reach consensus on that, just because it is a difficult consideration. But the idea that's been slowly brewed about is whether there's some sort of benefit to have some sort of kinetic energy ASAT test ban or guidelines, maybe dial it back guidelines. This, this might be the impetus because before we were working off, okay, the last test we had was in 2008 with the United States, um, USA 193 um, intercept. Um, so, you know, it was just kind of more theoretical, okay, maybe we need to have some sort of KEA sat ban. And now we're like, oh look, India just did it. Someone else might follow it. Maybe this is the, the thing that put the wheels in motion. So we shall see. Yeah, the, the short answer is no with a maybe. Uh, to build on what Victoria was saying, there's the, the, international, the, the international community that the, has long been focused on preventing uh, an arms race in outer space and focused on weaponization of space. But the countries mainly driving that debate, Russia and China, they are defining that as weapons placed into orbit which does not include drone launch directs and ASAT weapons. Uh, and, and the US and its allies uh, have been criti critical of that, saying, look, you're not covering this ground-based anti-satellite weapons. Um, Russia and China and a few other countries are pushing for a legally binding treaty. Uh, the US and its allies are mainly pushing for um, non-legally binding transparency and confidence-building measures. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of discussions of this topic. Uh, but sort of as Victoria laid out, not a clear path forward. I do think, based on sort of our discussion we've seen, that if there was a strong push uh, for a specific agreement, perhaps on kinetic testing of anti-satellite weapons, that might get some surprising amount of support because I've seen uh, a growing number of countries are very concerned about this issue. Uh, and, and I think if there was something focused on, a, on sort of a, a, a narrow issue like that, that broadly most people would agree, create, you know, just blowing things up in space and creating more space debris is probably not a great thing to do, it probably could get some traction. 
the big questions are how to verify it, um, and then, you know, as Victoria hinted at with the challenge of the MPT, who gets grandfathered in as a, you know, an ASAT weapon state, or is that even part of the discussion, or is it just, you know, no more blowing up satellites deliberately? Um, and does that take the form of a treaty? Is it some sort of a, uh, does it start as maybe a moratorium um, and then works its way up for there? I I'm not quite sure, but I, th I think that might be something that could, could possibly happen. And, and yeah, I just want to bring Caitlin and Thomas into it since you both highlighted jamming um, in your counter space threats and that was part of the question here is, do you think there's any effective way that we could, you know, reach some sort of an international agreement to deter jamming or restrict it? No. <laughs> um, I was going to say, like, um, you know, we do look at four categories of counter space weapons uh, and kinetic or physical weapons, which include direct ascent, ground-based ASATs, are one of them, and they are probably the ones that we are least concerned about or that we, you know, we look at, we verify, um, you know, as Victoria said, a lot of people assumed India did have an ASAT capability, um, did not need them to prove it. We believed them. Um, and so I think if there was a possibility for you know, a treaty or regulation against counter space weapons, as hard as it will be, direct ascent, kinetic, uh, you know, ground-based vehicles are probably the lowest hanging fruit just because the other types of counter space weapons are harder to attribute, they're harder to, um, you know, to uh, identify. There are strategic reasons why countries who do get jammed or blinded or dazzled might not want to admit that they, they have lost communication with their satellite. Um, and, and that makes, you know, that lack of transparency that these counter space activities are happening not only makes our job harder, but also makes uh, international discussions. What kind of weaknesses are you willing to admit and what kind of capabilities are you willing to admit to? Um, so I, I think direct ascent is, is the lowest that we, or the, which would be effective and I'm very supportive, but would be, you know, hard and e the easiest. I'd add that the difficulty in defining anti-satellite weapons across the international community is not going to get any easier. Um, the people on this stage took a stab at defining our own definitions and, and, and finding examples and, and uh, destroying a satellite on orbit is indisputably an anti-satellite weapon, but uh, degrading the data that is transferred by those satellites or the means by which we use those satellites, um, not everyone would agree those are anti-satellite weapons. And I like to highlight in the case of the only type of weapon we've seen used in conflict, jamming and spoofing, um, in some cases, the perpetrator, such as North Korea, would be happy to claim credit for that action, and they do. Um, but in other cases, like in Russia, you'll hear repeated denials um, of, of these accusations and a difficulty um, from those doing the using to prove that they're right. And so we'll, we're going to continue to see that, um, and the attribution issue that a few of my colleagues here have identified is to me, what will be the, the most glaring problem going forward. So I, I see we're at the end of the time for the panel discussion, and so now we're going to transition to watch a uh, short documentary film uh, that we put together here at CSIS. Uh, so please join me as we're doing the transition to thank the uh, panelists, uh, and you guys can take your seats in the audience.
Um, so as we're, as we're making the trans to the video, um, I want to take an opportunity to thank uh, uh, several people here at CSIS who have been instrumental in making this possible. Uh, so in our space threat report uh, that we published here, I want to thank Maddie Burgess, uh, Bergerthon and uh, Alex uh, Coltrup, who are our interns for our aerospace security project here at CSIS. They're very instrumental in helping with our research. Uh, and if you note at the back of the report, there's over 300 footnotes. It just shows how much research went into it. Uh, and imagine formatting all of those footnotes. Uh, that's a lot of work. Uh, and uh, Caroline uh, Abminabar uh, did all of the report layout for us. Uh, Jack, uh, uh, Lisa Luncheon uh, did a lot of the online interactive tools that you can find on our website. Emily uh, Tymeyer and Tucker Harris uh, did a lot of the graphics and web design. Uh, and Rebecca Shirazi, uh, who here, who leads our iLab uh, 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 part of CSIS, was great in managing all of this through the process. And for the video that you're about to watch here, I want to especially thank uh, Yumi Arkai, uh, for leading the production team on this. She did a wonderful job. Alex, again, uh, helped with a lot of the research and the editing for this. Uh, Francis Burkham um, did wonderful animations that you'll see uh, in the video. Paul and Ribka and Caroline all helped uh, with the production support. Uh, and I also want to thank all the guests that you'll see uh, appear uh, in the video, uh, some of whom have been in the room today, uh, and some of uh, whom, like Steve, make a cameo appearance, even though he was not interviewed, uh, he still shows up, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, after the video, um, you know, please uh, join us out here in the lobby area, and we're going to have a little reception uh, where everybody can meet and greet, and if you have any other questions for any of the panelists, you can feel free to corner them out there and ask as many as you want. Uh, so. Without further ado, uh, present our, our video, Commanding Space, the Space Force. even have a space force developed. When President Trump first mentioned the idea of creating a space force in March 2018, it caught many by surprise. You know, I was saying it the other day because we're doing a tremendous amount of work in space. A new force, we'll call it the space force. And I was not really serious. And then I said, what a great idea. Maybe we'll have to do that. It sounded to many like a random off-the-cuff idea and it provided great fodder for late-night comedians. The president said he wants to create a new branch of the military that would patrol outer space. <laughs> and get this, he wants to call it... Space Force! Space Force! <laughs> it sounds like what my grandma calls Star Wars. But behind the scenes, the Trump administration was tapping into a debate that had been simmering for more than two decades. He just happened to bring it to the forefront for the first time. The idea of warfare in space dates back to the beginning of the space age. After the launch of Sputnik in 1957, American and Soviet engineers went to work developing weapons that could defeat satellites. The first anti-satellite test was conducted in 1959. An American B-47 bomber launched a bold Orion missile at a defunct U.S. satellite. In the quest for military superiority, the United States became a leader in space technology. 
that lead was built up within the in early 60s when we separated space within the DOD into within the nation into three separate categories of space. We had civil space, which is the most obvious part of space, which is NASA. Uh, we had Department of Defense space, which was mostly focused on nuclear war fighting at the time. And then we had a national side of space. Uh, and each of them were their own cadre of people, um, but they interchanged a lot. The amazing thing we did is we created these giants in space who most of us revere today, uh, who understood the technology, the doctrine, and the strategy of space, and could execute it across either any of the in the wake of the first Gulf War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the way the military used space began to change. Through space forces, that helps us command and control our conventional forces around the world. It provides our conventional forces intelligence, reconnaissance capabilities, and furthermore, it allows us to place precision-guided munitions on potential targets. I would argue it is essential. And that's one of the reasons why Russia and China are developing a full satellite systems. They understand how dependent our conventional forces are on outer space derived data, and they are developing capabilities to deny us access to that information. We started to go ahead after the end of the Cold War. Um, we lost that singular focus. office Defense. We put in place personnel structures within uh, our Department of Defense space activities that actually inhibited the kind of growth that we had early in the space age. Congress became concerned about how the National Security Space Enterprise was organized to meet these new challenges, and some began discussing service might be necessary. So in 1999, Congress created what became known as the Rumsfeld Commission to study the issue. General Fogelman was one of the commissioners. Like any of these things, after it bubbles and boils a while, the Congress gets engaged in it, and so they wanted an independent, outside book of knowledgeable people to uh, address this whole, whole idea of organization and management of national security space. I mean, that was really what we were supposed to uh, get together and do. You know, Secretary Rumsfeld was chosen to lead this effort. Congress tasked the commission with assessing the establishing an independent military department for space and a space corps within the Air Force. They also addressed this issue about whether or not the Air Force was capable of fostering the development, the professional development of the human beings that are involved in space, and whether the Air Force of um, really fostering the growth of doctrine and uh, concepts and tactics, techniques, and procedures and other things. In January 2001, the Rumsfeld Commission issued its final report to Congress. We pretty well came down, I think, on the idea that in a not-too-distant future we may have, but it'll probably be like the Marine-Navy relationship with the Air Force. That was about as far as the Rumsfeld Commission was, you know, kind of willing to go with the thing. Then 911 happened, and and so I think the focus on the recommendations coming out of the Rumsfeld Commission were just kind of lost. Years for the Air Force to take appropriate action on its own. And it really looked like the Pentagon was going backwards, because ironically enough, the Pentagon had a space command from about 1985 to 2002. 
Then in the Iraq and Afghan wars, we started not paying as much attention to... In 2006, Congress ordered a new independent review of the National Security Space Enterprise, what became known as the Allard Commission. But before the commission had finished its work, China shocked the world with an unannounced destructive anti-satellite test in January 2007. As a result of that test, there have been uh, incidents where pieces of debris from that test have come close to China's own satellite, putting their satellite at risk. The timelines in space are very short. It's very difficult to know when something went wrong, why it went wrong. Nations like China started launching ASAT missile, virtually any satellite above our heads, and we just sat on our hands. In fact, we allowed space R&D budgets to go down. So what Russia and China are doing, it's not like they're doing things we cannot do. It's just the fact that they are now doing it. In 2008, the Allard Commission finished its work and issued its report to Congress, was the only person to serve as a commissioner on both the Rumsfeld and Allard Commissions. So in the Allard Commission, we kind of focused on how could we come up with a single organization that would have requirements authority, acquisition authority, the oversight of production. And we came up with this idea that what you really needed was an undersecretary of defense for space. The other thing the Allard Commission was very, very strong on was on the requirement to uh, have somebody responsible for the training of space intel community or space operators, this sort of thing. If you take the Rumsfeld Commission, the Allard Commission, and all of the others, if I had to translate today what the problems are, I would say we have three basic problems today. One is a warfighting readiness problem, a major problem that we have. Uh, we are not ready to fight a conflict that either begins in or extends into space. We're also, I think, uh, we have a problem with unity of effort. What Rumsfeld would have called seams exists today. It exists, and it exists in the preparation of our forces and capabilities to be able to, to fight in the kind of environment we're going to find ourselves in today. And then third, I think we have a maybe a uh, capabilities uh, issue. I think those are the three defined the problems to go solve. Those are the three. But following the Allard Commission report, little changed within the Department of Defense in terms of how national security space was organized. By the spring of 2017, some members of Congress were ready to take action. The culture of the Air Force remained the same, jocks and leather jackets, and then uh, on uh, a space cadre that could really do the job and keep up with the advances made in other nations. So we thought after uh, eight or 10 years of waiting on the Air Force to do something that we'd prod them a little bit to take a stronger action. Mike Rogers has some proposals that passed the House Armed Services Committee overwhelmingly. It was received somewhat reluctantly by the Senate, but it was included in the National Defense Authorization Bill to start creating a separate group of space professionals within the Department of Air Force kind of like the Marine Corps is in the department. People whose job, whose career, whose promotion opportunities would be centered on space excellence. That's what we were looking for. The Air Force argued against creating a Space Corps. 
Air Force Secretary Heather Wilson told reporters, quote, this will make it more complex, add more boxes to the organization chart, and cost more money. The Space Corps proposal ultimately did not pass the Senate in 2017, but the idea got a second chance in 2018 from an unexpected supporter. Very importantly, I'm hereby directing the Department of Defense and Pentagon to immediately begin the process necessary to establish a Space Force as the sixth branch of the armed forces. Certainly I was surprised. Uh, I have never heard a president of the United States mention a Space Force uh, before, and it had an interesting impact to the overall debate. Space Force. Space Force. It sounds clearly people want to know what's the uniform and, you know, is there a band that goes with the new branch of the military? We are going to have the Air Force and we are going to have the Space Force separate but equal. I think a lot of people anticipated it'd be something like Starship Troopers in that they had a satellite. I don't even know how that would work. But I mean, I think that's what the thinking is. Or they're thinking it's a suddenly huge change in the United States and we're shifting to suddenly having a national security space capability. And a lot of that is just people don't know. They don't know that the US military has been involved in space from the beginning of the space age. Uh, they don't know that it's part of our establishment works and they don't understand what exactly is being promoted. And to be fair, a lot of that is because the branding has been terrible on the Space Force. As their actions make clear, our adversaries have transformed space into a warfighting domain already. And the United States will not shrink from it. The idea the Space Force is that it would be able to more accurately put U.S. national security capabilities in space into one key place and really push for it as opposed to having it be up to the United States Air Force, which frankly is still very airplane-centric. What the Trump administration ended up proposing to Congress in 20 department as the president had first suggested. Instead, it ended up proposing a separate service that would remain under the Department of the Air Force, much like the Marine Corps falls under the Department of the Navy. This proposal is similar to the Space Corps proposal Congress considered in 2017. Importantly, the Space Force would not or activities from the National Reconnaissance Office or other intelligence agencies. The military, Congress, and outside experts remain divided on the best way to proceed. We've been chasing something for well over 20 years in space, organizationally, that I think does not have an organizational solution. I believe space missions remain with the Air Force. Changes have to be made. I could embrace a Space Corps if it was structured correctly. I'm not sure that the Marine Corps model is exactly right. So I used to say, today we are an Air and Space Force, an Air and Space Force, and we will eventually become a Space and Air Force. I think the idea that you're going to try to put together a National Space Force or a Space Force that excludes the intel community is folly. You can't do that. I, I just don't think you can do that. We should not be making this on the fly. Carry that assignment out. I would be very greatly honored also. Where's General Dunford? General? Got it? Let's go get it, General. We need a robust national debate to examine the pros and cons. Because the last thing we want to do is make rash decisions today and 
five years from now have to rethink and rejigger the entire organization. The biggest misconception is this was a, um, a wild idea that came out of the mind of the president and, and that's just wrong. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is this is a well-argued question that has taken the times of Secretary of Defenses and heads of armed service committees um, over the last 25 years. You know, in previous incarnations, this was really discussing reorganizing what already existed. Um, and there's bits of space in the, in, in the idea not only call it Space Force, you'd be elevating this to another military branch. It has the effect with the language, but you also need to be thinking carefully about bureaucracy. So I think China, I think it depends on the translation, but I think they already do have something that's very close to a Space Force. Um, the military space capabilities, but I think there is definitely probably an interest in having the ability to play to their own domestic audiences that they are keeping up with the United States. I often tell people, hands down, the U.S. has the best Air Force in the world. We should ask ourselves, would that be the case if the Air Force was still subjugated to the other? Probably would not be. People need to understand that military space is critically important to everything the U.S. military does and that we will lose soldiers, sailors, and airmen. We will lose lives without the use of space for the advantage of the, of the lives of non-combatants without the use of space for the military. We will lose lives of our adversaries that are unnecessary to be lost. Ultimately, Congress will determine the fate of the Space Force. I haven't met anybody yet who hasn't been to the briefings who doesn't agree with us that we need to enhance space capability in America of the pilot. So I think there's a huge bipartisan consensus here. It's a question of working it through the system. We've said enough. Let's sign. Let's sign. In the history of the stand-up or not stand-up of the U.S. Space Forces, uh, people are looking for Billy Mitchell. That person may not exist. He never exist. I want folks to understand that this is, uh, this is not a singular individual's crusade. This is a group of individuals from all political persuasions uh, who have come together to try to create something for the nation. Hi everyone, thanks again for joining us. Our reception is just across the gallery space. Please stay and join us. Thank you.